Welcome to another episode of Manny Talks. I am your host, Manny De La Cruz. And as always, thanks again for making yourself available to listen to this conversation. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Jairo Lopez. He is a friend of mine that I've uh, been knowing for about a decade. Uh, I met him when he was a student and part of the Mayas organization when he was going to California State University, Long Beach. And he's a now made a career as a software or software developer. So really glad that he and I were able to spend some time um, talking. I'm also, hey, this week, I am headed off uh, to Nila in Orlando. I'm looking forward to hanging out with those chapter leaders. And so if you're headed there, I hope to see you there and meet you. And if you're listening to this after Nila and we talked while we were at Nila, I meant it when I said reach out and let's uh, connect. Uh, so make sure you take me up and uh, some of the other professionals that you met up on the offer to connect. So, all right, let's go ahead and get into this conversation. Yeah, my choices of microphone are either my MacBook's mic or I have a headset, but I heard it's pretty garbage. Oh. <laughs> you've, you've already gotten that feedback. <laughs> yeah, so it's probably the best of both options. Okay, no, that works then. I mean, it's not it's not bad. It's just it's I think it it seems to be settling out. I don't know. Yeah, as long as well, if it's better than a phone call, if not, we can just do the phone call to you. I almost went out and bought a microphone just for this because I was like, man, I don't want people to hear my voice and have it be all, you know, clearly across overseas and stuff. So, but I don't know. Probably not the right reason to buy one. Nah, I, I call it, I, I, it gives it character. Is that, can we just call it? <laughs> it gives the recording some character. All right, let me just check a couple of things on my end. And look, I keep it simple. Like I know, like we'll just talk. I'm kind of part of this is catching up. I said, well, let me get back into into this and catch up with some people, and you know, and we'll talk about a couple of things. I I'm definitely interested in uh, some of the things that you're you're into, right? And of course, we'll talk the professional stuff too. We'll mix it in. Uh, sure. And if I ask you something and you're like, it's not making sense, just let me know. Like, hey, or if you don't. If I, if it didn't come across or if it messes up, we disconnect. Hey, we can connect back in and pick up from wherever we left off. So I don't sweat it. So I try to spend minimal time trying to worry about those sort of things because, well, this is for for fun, not for, for grub. <laughs> Got a little static, but maybe it's just my headphone connection here. So it's coming in on my side, not on the on the phone call channel. So it'll be on my end. That means it's not actually recording. It's just in my headset. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, you have like a, a whole setup there. Uh, a little bit. I bought one of these uh, what like audio interfaces, these, uh, these handy recorders. All it does is it lets me, like I use my phone. I don't use anything fancy. Like I use my phone and then oh. I just connect it at one channel straight into, you know, use it as an audio interface. And then I have a mic. I can do up to four separate connections. It's one of those, like, I didn't need this particular setup, but I was like, ah, this is going to be my toys. I'm going to spend a little, you know, spend, spend a little bit on it. So, anyway. You got to leave room for growth. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Plus, it was like, ah, this kind of stuff. I've always kind of liked the idea of uh, working on this kind of stuff. So, it was it was... I geeked out. I had some options and then I just ended up settling on, on what I ended up getting. So, okay. I've been there. Well, cool, dude. So let's get started. We'll keep it simple. Sure. Always the easiest place to start is on the basic info, man. Like tell us, uh, I guess I want to speed through some of it, right? Cause we'll get, we'll get into some other things and talk a little bit more mm -hmm. in detail. Right. So you're a computer science graduate from California state university, long beach, you're in that, and correct me if I'm wrong, from what I can gather, you're about nine years of professional now. So you've been working professionally about nine years, if I did my math correctly. Am I... Oh, God. Don't remind me. Wow. <laughs> has it been nine years? It has. I, if, I, if, I, if I'm looking at your yep. LinkedIn, it's like 2013 was when you first yep. started. And you right. worked for, for, for some different companies there. You've kind of progressed through, through some... Uh, different positions, which we'll kind of talk about because I don't, I, I'm not a computer scientist, right? I'm a mechanical engineer. Mm -hmm. So 
I do want to kind of spend a little time talking around, hey, what what was the uh, career progression and what does it look like? But let's let's you pick it up from like, hey, where are you working right now? What is your mm-hmm. role? What is your your job? So, well, I won't bury the lead in terms of my career history. I've only worked for two companies. Okay. But my LinkedIn looks very different, and I'll get into that later, I guess. Uh, we'll talk about some acquisitions and mergers in the tech industry. But I've only ever been at two companies. Um, but current company, I've been at, I think, going on six years now. Actually, I think I'm going on seven years now. Yeah, I just hit the six-year mark in June. Um, it goes has gone by many different names. Currently, we're called Edgeo. <clears throat> um, but it used to be a startup. Uh, called Edgecast that got bought and and switched hands multiple times. Um, I started as a QA engineer there. Um, now I'm doing software. I'm a senior software development engineer, which, I mean, it's just like a fancy title for senior software developer, but with like an emphasis in, I guess, like architecture, like building, uh, designing uh, programs, not so much uh, doing the actual programming, if that makes sense. So, and I'm specifically working on the security products uh, that my company offers. So I'm in like that security space. Um, and I've been there for maybe the last three years. So early on, like, give, give me, can you maybe talk generally, like when you first started off your career in computer science, like what was the kind of, well, I guess you, you kind of talked about what you're doing now, where you're more designing what, what something might look like versus doing the actual coding. But what was it like at the beginning? Like what was the... That initial analyst role, what exactly did you get into right out of, uh, right when you graduated? So luckily for me, I had an internship um, the last year I was in school. Um, And so that started off as like the support technician, which is like your basic level, like, you know, somebody calls in or it wasn't a call line. It was like a ticket email line. So somebody would send in a ticket about the software and then they'd give it to me and they'd be like, all right, figure out if the customer is, you know, is making a mistake or if there's something wrong with your product. Um, and for me, that was a good internship because it was a, it was a very small company. So it, it was very hands-on in terms of like, I, it wasn't like your traditional support role where uh, you had like a script and you had like, you know, things you had to double check. Like it wasn't like IT tech support where you were, would be like, you know, have you turned it off and on again? Have you done this? Have you done that? <laughs> This was like, okay, I got to have a copy of the code base and I need to look into the code to see what the customer is doing and to make sure that, you know, they're using it right or using it wrong. And then I have to report my findings to my boss and then respond back to the customer. So it was a little bit more in depth than what your, you know, what your traditional IT support role would be. Gotcha. Um, And so that eventually led into um, a space which they don't really talk about in college. And and it's been one of my, maybe like one of my pet peeves about the uh, bachelor, like the the, the bachelor's degree system, at least at at Kelsey Long Beach, is there's whole swaths of the industry that they never touch in school that you only find out about until after you graduate. One of those being like QA, like quality assurance, which is a big part of other traditional engineering disciplines, but in software, they don't talk about it as much, but it's just as, as vital because um, it kind of, it kind of adds like these, this golden sheen to the product that you're offering okay. in terms of software. And specifically, there's this concept of uh, test automation, which means that uh, as a soft, like the software development lifecycle uh completes like from development to release there's a section in the middle that would be testing and it'd be all automated so you have this pipeline where somebody you know codes something it goes to testing everything sets automatically you don't have to have anybody there manually testing software which is the old way to do it um it just happens automatically there's like a simple you know green or red like you know go or stop and then if it's green it goes on to the next level and then it gets released and you know everything is happens automatically so that's like a whole part of the industry that um i don't know it's very important now and you don't really see it a lot in in classes and i guess you were you started to touch on what i what i was was getting at it's like hey was it what you expected and it sounds like you found out that you know no. it's not it was only a fraction and i don't i don't think that's exclusive to 
computer science, right? I mean, even for I, 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 for me, for sure, in mechanical engineering, uh, when I went to go work for ExxonMobil, like, okay, I had through the recruiting process, I had kind of learned about what ExxonMobil kind of did. And then I got that first internship and I was like, oh, this is what a, a mechanical engineer does at a plant. And it wasn't, uh, I mean, in school, you were focused on like, you know, people were talking about working on the latest and greatest and designing and something new. And this was more of the, well, what I call keeping the lights on, right? There's a ton of just STEM work out there that is is more about maintaining and maintaining i guess maybe optimizing our our lifestyle right what we're used to maintaining the infrastructure maintaining the products creating like in your case software or supplying you know uh goods and services for now and then there's a smaller percentage that is the well, i'm going to go build this brand new rocket for spacex like that's not what the majority of 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 the roles are so today though so now you're in and, and i saw i mean you've gone through different levels i guess right is the best way i could mm-hmm. i, I could kind of see it a, a software developer and your current role now you said you're more in a design say say more about that yeah so um the 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 process to get to where i am now it it's because i became a real like uh quality like automation evangelist after i I got that first two years of experience of learning about all this stuff. And so there's like this hybrid position called software development engineer in test. And what that means is I'm developing software used to test software, right? So it's test automation uh, software. That's like my focus. And I, at my company, like my team, we made a real push to, there tends to be like this divide between the the software engineers who test and the software engineers who write features like, you know, like the rocket ships that you were talking about, there has been historically this, um, I guess this like scarlet letter on testing. Like it's not a real part of the software development life cycle. And as part of my job in this company, like we made a real push to uh, accept it as just another discipline of uh, development. And so the fruit of that labor was that I got made into an actual uh, development, like software development role. Right? That's why I made like this lateral transition. And so now I have my hands in everything, not just testing. And um, a lot of what I do is, you know, somebody will give me like the business, like the product owners will be like, look, this is what the business needs. And then they'll give it to my manager. And my manager, he runs like the security division of what we do. And he's like, Hiro, like this uh, looks like it's good for you. I work a lot with like customer configurations and stuff like that. Like we all have like our little domains, like domain of knowledge that we have. Um, and so he's like, Hiro, this looks good for you. Like, can you build something that does X, Y, and Z? And I'll go, yes. And I'll design it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll put in all the parts. And then as I need help, like actually building the program, I'll recruit some of like the other engineers on the team. So. So at this stage of your career, do, are, are you still, would you consider it fully technical or have you gotten into uh, leadership or, or like management type responsibilities? Where, where are you at? I think it's still fully technical. Um, if I could, if I would say, I guess if I put a name on it, I'd be like a lead engineer. Okay. So not exactly in the manager side of things. I'm still shielded from the politics of it all, I guess you could say. Um, and I'm not managing people or, or their goals. I'm just strictly going like, this is the technical like things that we need to do. This is the goals we have in terms of like just the product yeah. and I'll help the junior devs on the team get there and, and they'll help me and I'll help them. Like I'm still very hands-on. So it's not exactly like. Gotcha. Are you, are you, are you interested in going into management or I heard you say shielded from the politics or is that your, yeah. your way of saying like, Hey, that is not for me. What, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I thought about it a couple of times and you know, it's not really something I, I see myself enjoying. Um, I, you know, there, there's definitely a, a breed of a software engineers who just want to, they have like the technical ladder that they climb like all the way. I'm not sure if that's going to be for me, but at the moment, like, I definitely don't like, um, I definitely don't like having to 
I guess, like, you know, get, get into the battlefield with uh, different groups at the organization, right? And and battle out for the the fate of my team, which I, is what I see my manager doing, right? Yeah. Like, they set up their necks for us. And I'm just like, man, I don't want to be part of that world. Like, I, I, you know, the value that comes from my job is from, I think that what I, what I gain the most out of it is uh, problem solving, which has always been like, you know, it, it's always like this feeling of euphoria when you solve a technical challenge, at yeah. least for me. And learning, you know, just learning all the new stuff that comes. And in computer science, like, I don't know how it is in other industries, but for us, it's like constantly new things, new innovations that we have to keep abreast of or else, or else we become like outdated, right? In terms of how we think and how we code. So, Yeah, and, and you, you kind of, you said something that caught my attention when you said, oh, it's the problem solving. And there's a bit of euphoria to like solving a technical, a technical problem. It's like a puzzle. And like, so for me, it's just, it's ironic. So obviously I went the management route. I think you know that about me. Like I went uh, at this stage, I'm a, a, a manager, an, a technology engineering manager for, and I support three businesses globally. And it's very much what you said, like I'm, I'm the one sitting there talking budgets and people plans and talking about, you know, performance and, 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 and next, you know, career, career development opportunities for folks. And then mm -hmm. when something goes wrong, like, Hey, being able to report out to executives and take everything. So it's definitely its own <laughs> battlefield, the way you put it. Yeah. But to me, I still see those as problems to solve. And for me, right. I, it, it, it's just, and all it is is perspective, right? It's, this is a, 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 a testament to, to, to perspectives. And for me, I enjoy being able to solve these problems and even more so. So for me, like I'm a mechanical engineer, but at this state, like I'm, uh, all of my engineers are chemical engineers and these are more senior engineers in their career that are, that are mm -hmm. the, like the leads of their respective technologies. And so these are the folks that I am tasked with trying to help break barriers. So part of the euphoria for me is like learning all the chemical engineering aspects of the products that we're making and how the equipment works. So it's, it's problem solving with, with, with the twist, but, uh, but, but of course to each their own, right. I don't think there's a, a wrong or a right, you know, for technical versus management. I was just interested to hear how you perceived it. And uh, I guess I'll ask a follow-up question on that. Have you had to make a decision one way or the other with where, where you work, or do you find that it's still open and flexible for you to be able to go on where or the other, if you chose to? I think it's, I think it's flexible. Like I, I have definitely told my, um, I, I've had, I had a manager for a long time, maybe for like five years and I recently got a new manager. Um, but my original manager, like I was clear to him, like that I didn't want to do go into the people management, at least not yet. Not So then he was, he always made sure to send, you know, me down the technical routes or give me technical challenges, stuff like that. Uh, same thing with my new manager, but I've gone through lots of shakeups at my company, right? Yeah. There's, we've changed hands like three times. That's why I have three different companies on my, on my LinkedIn, because we've been bought and sold a couple times or merged uh, in the most recent time. And so whenever that happens, there's always like a moving of people, a shuffling of, of, you know, like a reorganization, sure. like the hierarchy. And so there's always a danger there for me and, and from my perspective of that, I'll get put into like a management role because I'm going to be the most senior because uh, I went through a, there was a period last year where a lot of my team members left The manager left um, two of the senior development engineers left because of the, that's when they announced the merger and, you know, people were, were, taking opportunities elsewhere and so there was like this there's always this chance that somebody's gonna be like hiro you know like you're the most senior person on the team now you know the product better than anybody like you are the most natural fit to manage this team at that point i don't see myself saying no because like it's either that it's either i take the reins and like do things the way i feel they're going to be correct or i give it to somebody else who might not know what that is right you know, right so at that point, I think I would I would budge, but that hasn't happened to me yet. I've come close, but it hasn't happened to me yet. Um, and to go back to what you said before, I think it's for me. I think it's just a matter of like the things within my purview. Like I can control like the technical things. Like yeah. they're all in my you know, realm of control. 
when it comes to dealing with people and outside is like it gets frustrating for me right and i think that's the part i don't mind oh yeah that's the part they don't tell you about being a supervisor it's like there's what do you do in those moments where you don't like a hundred percent agree with what's coming down the pipe but at some point i mean you have to like have the conviction to voice your opinion and try to influence the change or whatever but at some point and you got to commit, right? Like at some point it's like, okay, what's going to be the general decision? And then you got to outline. And that's true. That's definitely a, a portion of being a supervisor that you don't necessarily, uh, that you only learn with, with repetition, I suppose, or with some mm-hmm. actual on the job type of training. Cause all those situations, I can think of back in my career, there've been different times like, man, I don't know that I'm a hundred percent with this, but, uh, we got to do it like this is hey this isn't manny's oil company this is exxon mobile <laughs> i have my opinions i'll voice them but at some point the the ship has to move um forward so let's switch gears a little bit now we're going to yeah. touch on non we're going to come back to some work stuff kind of work stuff but also maybe bleed into a bit of the personal but i want to completely go the other way and uh mm-hmm. i think back when i met you Heidel, i'm pretty sure you weren't a cyclist right i don't no. think you had gotten into into that and i've been seeing that journey unfold on instagram i'll be honest probably since the very beginning i maybe have liked or commented but like i've I've seen this so tell me about this man how did you get into let's talk about the beginnings of you and cycling and is that you know how how did that happen well it all comes down to the the greatest shakeup of our generation uh, the pandemic right okay Uh, it was um I don't know, a lot of people weathered it differently, but for me, it was just like such a moment for me to like reel back in all the stuff that I was doing, like all my social life and everything gone, right? And it's like, it leaves you in like this fertile ground of like, well, dang, what do I do now? Like now that we're stuck inside, like what do I focus on? Where's my attention go, you know? And I I was very much the kind of person who would just be out and I didn't pay attention to my health very much. Um, I told myself I did, but I wasn't really, you know, I think I was like, I think since the pandemic started, I've lost uh, over like 130 pounds. Wow. And a lot of that came to just like, uh, you know, the the complete reset of my life after COVID. Um, I started eating better now that I was at home. I wasn't going out to eat. I wasn't like ordering food. I, I committed to like making my own food every day. Um, and then maybe six months after that, um, I had a bicycle that I hadn't used in six years. It was sitting in my closet. Um, my roommate had the gracious, uh, idea to go get our bicycles fixed. Um, and then ride them to the beach. Cause we live like, I live like two miles from the beach and I've never, like, I never went there. I never did anything. Right. And it's a beautiful bike path there. So she was like, let's fix our bikes and let's take them to the beach. So we did that. Uh, and we thought it was like a good, this was like maybe July of 2020. We thought it was like a good activity that we could do outdoors away from people. Uh, you know, it was like that phase of the pandemic where we didn't want to be around anybody. Um, and so we got those fixed and I feel like this was a ploy on, on, on my roommate's part, uh, to, I guess, get me active because she literally rode with me one time that first time and never again, she was like, <laughs> my bike anymore and i was like what you know uh but then i was hooked i was doing an eight mile ride to the beach and that that ride destroyed me the first time i was like sweating out of breath um there's a little part that goes up a hill on the way back home i I would get off my bike and like walk it up because i just couldn't um but i stuck to it i i told myself i'm gonna do it three days a week and that's what i did and eventually that snowballed into me doing these absurd uh rides that i'm doing now Oh, don't don't gloss over it. So let's talk about the absurd, because I know yeah. the la- I think the last one you did was almost 127 miles, so 126. Yeah, that's to date. That's the longest ride I've done is 125 miles, 5,000 feet of climbing. So, so how 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 does how does that happen? Is it literally just over time, little by little? Was there some training? How how did that come to be? There's definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of steps that I took to get there. Oh, the, the the most important one I think is that my friend Daniel, Daniel Hernandez, uh, I think you might know him. Yep, I know Daniel. Miles. Yeah, yeah. So he he lives like two houses down from me, right? So and he used to be my roommate, uh, not not during the pandemic, but now he lives like really close. 
So he would always be like, dude, you should get on your bike. We should go bike bicycling. And so after my roommate abandoned me on her bicycle, I, I asked him, I'm like, hey, what should I do? Because he kind of went on this parallel journey like three years before I did, where he went from like zero to, you know, all the crazy stuff that he's doing now. He's like, he turned me on to a lot of uh, groups in Long Beach <clears throat> that meet up with each other and they just go bicycling. Um, there's a group that meets on Wednesdays. There's a group that meets on Tuesdays. Uh, the Tuesday group is my favorite because they go out to eat tacos. So every Tuesday, it's like a different ride to go get tacos. Sometimes it's like 10 miles, sometimes it's 20 miles, but it always ends with uh, tacos. So I like that one. That one got me hooked. So I was like, yeah, I'll come into that. Um, so over time, uh, I was consistent, you know, three days a week, three days a week. And then uh, 2021, um, they gave me the idea or the idea snuck in that I could do hundred miles. Um, what, what, like, what, what, what was the most you'd ridden when that crazy idea got in your head? The most I'd ridden was 35 miles to Huntington beach and back. Okay. Um, but I was doing it so well at that point, at least I felt that I was doing it so well that, you know, um, my friend Daniel would send me all these articles and be like, look, this is how you can train 200 miles. Like it's super simple. There's an eight week plan, a nine week plan, whatever it was. And I, you know, you kind of start to buy into it, right? The, the me from 2020 would never have thought I, I could do it. But the me from 2021 was like, well, I've already ridden 35 miles. Like if I keep adding 10 more miles, you know, a weekend or whatever, like I'll get to hundred. <laughs> and so I started, I started following this training plan that I found online. Um, and it kind of worked. I will say maybe I wasn't ready to do the first hundred miles, the first hundred mile ride I did. I, it was very painful. It was very, very painful. But when you know when you're at mile ninety, it's like I got no you got no choice but to keep going, right? And even if I wanted to quit, the other beauty of cycling is that you have to get back home. You have to get back to your car, right? Like Yeah, I read one of your blogs where you kind of talked about that ride where you were about to get home and you were a couple miles short. So and you ended up having to make that mental decision to like cap it off. Yeah, it it it, it that that first century was very much like that. I think I got to like Huntington Beach and you get to a point where you need to listen to your body. And the, the problems I had, they weren't even so much with my legs as so much as the rest of my body, like my back, my shoulders, you know, my wrist, those things start to hurt when you're on this, when you're on the bike for like nine hours. Right. Uh, which is something you don't think about when you're doing 50 mile or even 60 mile rides, because like it's pretty okay at that point. But, when you're doing these longer rides, it's like endurance. It's like your whole body has to endure, not just your legs, right? Because my legs keep moving, and I was conditioned enough. So yeah, you you have to get the, gain this mental fortitude to even like even if you have to take a, like a thirty minute break or even like one hour just to like you know lay down or in my case like ate a pizza at some random you know restaurant gas station that I found, um, and then just head home, you know then. That's what it takes. That's what it takes. Because I think that's the other cool part that I found about the way you do the rides is that you're also, you talk, and again, in your blog, you talk on several occasions around getting to know the city, right? And stopping at different places and, and seeing things. Had you, prior to this, was that not something that you did get to get around uh, the LA area? No, actually, I, I, I used to actually even avoid taking the, the public transportation because I hated it. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of characters on, on the buses and the trains. <laughs> I I always used to avoid. I used to drive everywhere, but um, after I, I gained conditioning and like the miles required to like do these longer rides, you know, like getting from here to LA and round trip, it's like 60 miles, right? So after I started doing stuff like that, like I, there was a real sense of adventure, a real excitement that came from being able to like you know go go from long beach to manhattan beach and then take a stop at a donut shop in la and then go to a cycling cafe and and the arts district and then come back home you know it was like it was like the feeling you get when you're you're like on vacation right and you're just like hanging out and doing cool things except that i'm on my bicycle and you know i'm i'm gaining fitness and burning calories the entire time so so you, so now it's been about a couple of years now, right, that you've been doing this. Is that that, that about right? And yeah. you have another ride coming up? 
I have a a the hardest ride I've I've ever uh, maybe I'll ever do. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's a called the Tour de Big Bear, and it's 100 miles with 8,000 feet of climbing. Wow. Um, so that's another thing. I I used to stick to flat paths before because climbing is like a whole other thing, right? Um, it's like I don't know to put it into perspective. Like on a on on a flat surface, like on the beach path, I can go maybe 18 to 20 miles per hour at this point um, consistently. But when it when the moment like you hit a gradient and you know depending on how steep that gradient is, let's say six percent, some of these like mountain roads are like six to seven percent. I go down, <clears throat> it goes down to five miles per hour because it's hard. It's like really hard, you know. And I'm like struggling to go, and I have to go down to like the biggest gear, you know, like my bicycle has gears, and uh, and I'm like crawling up these mountain sides, and that. That I had to switch to doing rides like that in order to progress my training, my fitness. Um, so the, the reward is that I get really cool views, right? So I climbed up Mount Baldy a couple of weeks ago, which was like amazing. It's like it's like I don't even like driving up this far, and I I rode my bike up here. That's crazy. That's awesome. And there was a there was a ride in Mount Wilson where I started off at the Rose Bowl, uh, which is like a stadium here in LA. And it was like an overcast day and I'm, I'm riding up the mountainside. And at some point I break through the clouds and I'm on top of the clouds. All of a sudden it's bright as hell up there. And I'm like, wow. Oh my God, I get to the top of the observatory. I look down and it's like nothing but a sea of clouds. And I was like, Whoa. Oh, like I was just under that blanket. It's kind of crazy. It was like climbing up to Mount Olympus. That's, what I felt like. <laughs> That's pretty neat. That's pretty neat. So any, I guess, un, uh, like favorable, unforeseen consequences that have come out of this for you outside, you know, in your, aside from the health benefits, but how about with, you know, from your, your, your outlook in life or stuff with work, how has that uh, hobby bled into, into your perspectives and the way you think and stuff like that? I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely like changed, I think changed me as a person. Um, definitely like physically and uh, mentally. I mean, I, um, I feel like now that I have another byproduct of COVID was that I have this freedom with my time that I didn't have before. Cause before I still went to the office, maybe three days a week, but I still had two work from home days, but I used to go into the office and my office is in Playa Vista. And that's like maybe an hour and a half in traffic, right? Famous LA traffic. Um, to get there and back. So I'd waste three hours of my day driving, right? And that always took its toll on me too, where I just wanted to be home and like do nothing after that. <clears throat> now that I have all this free time, now that I'm working from home permanently because my, my office is actually shut down recently, um, it's afforded me like the opportunity to, to focus on my health and, and in terms of cycling. I even do a little bit of running. Um, I got... I got hit by a car last year, uh, so I took up running while my bike was uh, uh, getting replaced because it was it was totaled. Um, but I took up running for a bit, and I think it just helps me relieve that stress, right? It, it lets me shift my, I guess, my focus from work challenges to health or athletic challenges. And I think the benefit is that it's like the what they say, like, you know, sometimes you figure things out in your sleep, or you figure things out in the shower. Like for me, as I have my blood circulating through like my body and my brain when I'm working out, a lot of things uh, will get solved, you know, work problems. Yeah. So I'm just, oh, you know, that's one way to do it. That's not the way to do it. Like it comes to me, you know, and I don't know if that's, that, I don't know if that's rooted in science or in psychology, but you know, it's, uh, it happens to me. So I think it's, uh, it feeds into each other, you know? Yeah, so I'm going to take us back because you just kind of rolled over the fact that you got smoked by a car a year ago. <laughs> so so, so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not going to let that one go. What happened? <laughs> um, yeah, that was in October of last year. I, I, it sucked because I had this um, birthday celebration for myself or a birthday vacation plan for myself where I was going to take my bike to Carmel, which is like this beautiful seaside town famous for having uh, Clint Eastwood be mayor for like two years back, back in the nineties, I think. Um, but I was going to take my bike there, roll around the the seaside and then take my bike to San Francisco and then you know, cross the Golden Gate Bridge do all these like beautiful 
rides. Um, and the week before I was going to go on that vacation, I got hit by a car because I was waiting at the stoplight, like as a like like a pedestrian, right, waiting to walk across. Yeah. Um, and I was waiting there for the light to turn green. It turned green, and I pedaled my way over. So I wasn't like coming out of. I wasn't like shooting out of you know the intersection or something. Like I was waiting, and I started pedaling when it turned green. The person across from me was making a right turn across the the walkway that I was pedaling now, and they could make a right because it was green for them. But I, they were looking to the left to make sure that no cars were coming from that yeah. direction, and they never once turned around to see me crossing the crosswalk, and they rolled right into me. Um, so my bike took most of the the force. Uh, because it's like I'm it's a kind of like a higher bike yeah so it hit the, their bumper like hit my or the grill rather hit my bike I flew onto the windshield hit it with my shoulder rolled off and then uh, hit the road with my shoulder again and I have like this road rash um, but that was the worst of it I, I didn't get uh, broken bones or anything but my bike the frame was completely bent so I couldn't use it anymore and I take it this isn't one of these bikes you just pick up at Walmart no, my the original bike I started with was, um, but I upgraded about six months after. This was like, this was like maybe like a fifteen hundred dollar bike. Yeah. That I had. Um, so, I had to go on my sad vacation, uh, but without a bike. Oh. I did a lot of walking instead. Did you ever get to make it up? No, I haven't gone back yet. But uh, I, I went to San Francisco recently, but I rented a bike, um, so I wasn't as as great as a as a as it can be because my the the feel of my bike is so much better plus it's a lot lighter yeah i had like this clunky hybrid like heavy hybrid so i, I went across the golden gate bridge and that was amazing but i, I could have done more if i had my bike so i haven't done that one yet gotcha all right let's switch gears a little bit no pun intended <laughs> but uh along the same lines of hobbies another thing that you do is you collect vinyl right yeah so <laughs> Uh, that's about all I can say about that. Look at that. That's a that's a that's a big collection. How many records do you own? Uh, I think I'm at I think I'm at like two thousand by now. Two thousand. All kinds yeah. of music. Tell me about that. How did you get involved with that? How long have you been doing it? There's there's two main types of music that I have. Um, I well okay on my shelf I have two main genres. Um, one of them is metal. And the other is the complete opposite. It's like uh, orchestra, uh, film scores, soundtracks. I, I love them all together, right? They're like uh, compositions. Um, I have a little bit of jazz. I have a little bit of classic rock. And I have, uh, I think, a tiny bit of um, hip-hop. Um, so I actually have a huge CD collection, too. I I've always been a collector. Um, it was a lot cheaper to collect CDs, so that's what I did in college. Uh, I think I have about 600 CDs. Okay. Um, so the reason, which are, are mostly classic rock, so that's why my vinyl collection is missing a lot of classic rock because I'm always like, man, I already have it on CD. Like, do I really need to get on the record? You know, like I have this battle, mental battle with myself. So <laughs> the classic rock that I do have have been like rare finds or, or, or albums that are special to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, for the most part, um, metal, I've always been into metal, even since I, you know, since I was in college, it was like, you could consider it like my first musical love, you know, and I'm sure it comes out of my rebellious, you know, teenage years, like, you know, the, the testosterone and the hormones and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, I think it has a, a very, um, interesting effect on, on teenagers. Um, I still like it, but I'm definitely not as inspired by it in every situation as I am by my, my new love, which is like orchestra and, and film scores. And um, I, I actually tell, I actually take film classes on the side. Um, so uh, every semester I'll take like one class after, after work um, because I'm, a, I'm like a cinephile as well. And I have a huge, <laughs> I have a huge uh, uh, criterion and Blu-ray collection that you can talk about too if you want. But yeah, I, um, I take film classes because at a certain point I was going to the theater a lot and I thought like, man, I love this as a hobby, but I need to take it up another level if I'm going to, you know, rationalize me spending so much time doing this. I, 
in my mind, I didn't want to just be like a guy who watched movies. I wanted to be a guy who understood the films, appreciated them with like a deeper at a deeper level. Yeah. Um, so that's why I started taking classes to so I could apply this analytical like concept like concepts to the movie and, and like understand it. Kind of like kind of like when you take a you know English English lit or whatever and you read a book and you dissect its themes yeah. and that stuff. It, I wanted to do that with film. So that's why I started taking these classes. And when I did that, it opened up this realm uh, of, of film music and scores because when you break down parts of the um, film music, like when you understand like the, the motifs and the themes, it's almost like you can listen to a record and be watching the movie because of the way they, they compose the music for the movie. It's kind of crazy. Are they still putting out like movie soundtracks or are you, are these like ones that you're finding for like older? I remember back in the day, back in the day, going to date myself, right? It wasn't uncommon movie came out and you could buy the soundtrack. Like you did like, yeah. like all kinds of movies. Is that still the case now with newer movies? Yeah, there, there there's a whole, it's not even, a, I don't want to even call it a cottage industry anymore. It's like a whole, like, you know, the, the cycle has repeated itself. There's like a very big, market for um vinyl for especially for movies for tv shows for everything uh, almost every band i follow has a record like a vinyl release um for the new albums um i think it's just like easy money for them like at this point you know it's like well print maybe print 500 copies put it on a special limited edition collar they'll sell fast you yeah. know no matter what it is um so yeah i'm constantly buying new records in fact the the classics like the legendary records that i uh that i would like to own like you know all, all the movies from my youth like et star wars like jurassic park those have all gotten reissued and repressed uh, because you know there's people from my generation who want the same things and they start the companies and they get the rights and they make them with uh, a special eye towards you know people like me the, the whole nostalgia cycle right so i feel like we're all caught up in that right now yeah, I hear you. So is it, 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 are you so deep into it? Like, uh, is there a preference for the, for, for music on vinyl because of sound or is it just about having the record and, and, you know, and playing it on a, on a record player? Uh, for me, honestly, I think it's mostly the, yeah, like that, uh, like that ceremonial aspect of yeah. you know, out a record from its sleeve you know, appreciating the artwork, like you have like this giant booklet, reading the back, putting the, you know, the vinyl, putting it, um, making it play, having it come out of my speakers. Like I say there, there is a difference. I think a very real difference in music quality when it comes to like, you know, compressed audio to analog. But I, I really think the only way to appreciate it is with like a good pair of headphones. Gotcha. Directly from the record player. Don't digitize the signal. Um, you know, some people have like the Bluetooth headphones and they'll plug it into a record player. And I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, you're getting this beautiful analog sound and then you're digitizing it and yeah. putting it in your ears. Like, come on. Yeah, because um, one thing that caught my attention of some of your posts that you would put on some of the, like you got something new was the artwork and even the, like what's on the record themselves, right? Like, you know, at first you would think, oh, solid black, you know, old record. For, but that's not quite the case anymore. They come in different colors and, and, and yeah. so on and like it's like my I, I that's the part that i like about uh, about rec i don't collect them but my my brother-in-law does and if i go to a flea market or a pawn shop like i like thumbing through because i like seeing the the artwork the covers yeah. and, and 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 uh very similar to me like i i like looking at graffiti i like tattoos i don't have any but i, I can yeah. appreciate a good tattoo like tattoo art right because right. it's just it's just interesting it's uh it's different. It's that same artistic appreciation, but for, for, for record art, I, um, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. And some of these companies put like some real, real work into designing some of these records, like, especially targeted to exact, like my exact demographic of people who, uh, love the music, but they also love the source where it came from, like the film. So like, there's a record from, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, they live by John Carpenter. Yeah. So they have a, the record for it, and the the jacket is like the sunglasses from the movie. Yeah. And you can take out the sunglass film, and then on the record, you'll see like the, the hidden messages from the movie. Really? 
the consume, the sleep, the obey, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I was like, this is crazy. And then there's like a, the booklet is made to be a newspaper. And then <clears throat> there's like a piece of gum stuck in, in one of the pages and it's, it's fake gum, but like, it looks like real gum. And I'm like, this is insane. Like the level of effort they put into this. And um, you can also put on the glasses that they give you and like, you'll see like a whole different message in the booklet on the inside when you look at it. So really? Like, and this is just the music. Like it's not, you know, it's not like a special edition of the film or anything. And then of course you put on the music and the, the vinyl is made to look like one of the aliens eyeballs. It's like blue and, and pink and stuff. So yeah, yeah that's they, how they get like me. They get pretty elaborate. Like that's the kind of stuff like I can appreciate. I certainly am not, my ears are not to the point where they would distinguish sound, but the artwork of it and the details, like you're describing that kind of stuff. It's like, man, that's freaking cool. Like that's when yeah. I, when I, when I, what caught my attention about you was from your pictures and stuff like, man, these are way more involved than what I would have thought, you know, or what I, or, or what I, uh, what I knew. Yeah. Um, all a lot of like uh, independent uh, like labels and uh, because I mean, the way it works with like music rights, like anybody can get the rights to a soundtrack and make a copy of that soundtrack. Um, but you got to follow the special retailers and labels to get like the ones that are a real labor of love. Right. So I feel like over the time I've just built up like my list of sources of like, all right, these guys put out good stuff. I'm going to buy whatever they put out next for X or Y or Z. Right. Yeah. Because when you fall into the trap of like going to, you know, like a Best Buy or Target to buy records, you're going to get the most milk toast record. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Uh, oh, I know what I was going to ask you. So is the whole, are there secret messages in, in records if you play them backwards? Is that true? I've heard this. <laughs> um, some of them, you can definitely do it, but I have not found any to date. So I don't know. There, There is one record that does have uh, backwards speech. Yeah. I think it was an Iron Maiden record. And then when you play it backwards, like they're just saying really dumb stuff. Burping <laughs> like, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that was the other, you know, the 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 urban legend from back in the day, you know, secret messages on records like, ooh, watch out. Anywho, at least that's what I remember from yeah. uh, from, from from some of that. All right, let's try. I'm going to try another topic with you, okay? I'm going to kind of sure. switch uh, uh, again, and this is one I've been seeing on LinkedIn um, posts around whether or not social issues should be like work work issues. Right. And what responsibilities do like, you know, do, 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 do supervisors or companies have in in creating or yeah spaces for for these th for social issues to kind of be discussed at the workplace? I kind of want to get your opinion a, a couple of different ways. I'm not trying to get into any specific item. Right. But just in general, like how do you what are your thoughts uh, on staying informed? And I'm just going to use that very generally with social issues. How do you do it? And what are your thoughts about them needing to be discussed in the workplace? Yeah, I think there's this, you know, there's this effort or, or not effort, but there's like some. Sometimes when you're at work and you're there to do a job, you're getting paid to do a job. You got to work nice or work well with your teammates. Right. That's part of like. The, you know the culture like that's where you got hired because of the culture you have to work with be able to resolve things like smoothly so throwing politics into that i can see why companies would want to refrain from doing that because it's almost like it's almost like something that's not required for the people at the company to work right yeah but at the same time the way corporations function in America are, are, are just like, if you don't change it from the inside out, like there's no hope. Right. I, I feel like, and sometimes I think, especially in the days after, um, you know, what happened to George Floyd, there was a real push to voice things that we see that we don't, you know, that we don't agree with. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, and you know, th those things can take many forms, right. I'm not, it could be like politely telling your executives that like 
you know, some Q&A session that like, hey, I, I noticed this, I, I thought that was not cool, and then they would take action, right? Or it could be like, you know, demanding things from your manager or from the executives or, you know, creating a, a movement of sorts, like like at Starbucks is having their employees unionize in certain parts of the, the country now. So it could take different kinds of action, but I think it's healthy to at least speak out about the things that are important to you, right? Because if you don't influence your company's culture, then how is that company going to change? And how is that company going to recruit, I think, the best talent, you know, that may feel lower or especially, I think it's a problem here in in LA, right? Um, I think here we tend to think of things in certain light. Um, and I think a lot of the company, at least in my company, a lot of them think the same way. And we all decide to tell our leadership stuff when we feel like something's wrong. And we'll be like, you know what? Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're going to change this and this and this because if you don't want to work at your company, then you're going to lose you, right? So I think it's a beneficial process. I think. But I think when, it, when you get into the weeds of like, uh, discrimination for like politics-based discrimination, like say you don't hire somebody who doesn't agree with you know X, Y, or Z politician, or, yeah. or vice versa, then you're getting into like legal legal territory, which I, I don't think is good. So, but I kind of like what you I kind of like what you said, right? And, and that's the part that I'm reflecting on, where you said, well, first of all, you got to for yourself, you got where where you have convictions and where you have opinions and where you're passionate, like you should feel comfortable. And and you should bring it up, right? You should bring it up as as you as you as you need to for yourself, right? So one of that, so that kind of assumes that you do have an idea of what's important to you and what isn't. And then I think the secondary part, from what I took from what you said, is like, well, now you are you want to work in a place where that kind of discussion isn't automatically shut down. Maybe they're not, you're, maybe you're not looking for, you know, some, you know, your supervisor, your boss to be on point with every social topic and bringing it up and making it a big fluff. But if someone does bring it up, Hey, make it safe or comfortable to, to talk about it. I think uh, that's the way, at least that's what I heard. Am I hearing it correctly? No, you're right. Um, and, and definitely I've always tried to keep uh, like politics out of the daily, like the day to day stuff. Yeah. You and manager, like I don't expect my manager to come into the office and be like, whoa, did you hear about, you know, the, you know, Roe v. Wade getting struck down? Like, wow, that's pretty messed up. I expect uh, him to be receptive to like, you know, me going like, wait, so what's the company's position on this? Yeah. Or do, does it matter to them? Will, will they do something to, you know, um, I expect him to be able to answer those kind of questions, but I, I never expect any anything of like dis- heavy discussions on these topics. Uh, although they do happen, especially at my my previous when we were owned by Yahoo a couple I guess a couple months ago. Yeah, they would definitely have like these um, daily meetings of like, look, if you want to come and talk about things with your peers about social issues or pol- political issues come to this meeting and it's like a forum where you can talk expressly about those things. And I think that's also a good thing to do because then you're not, you know, these things are not bubbling up in, in random places where it could be detrimental to like the day-to-day business. Now you have like an actual forum where you can come and voice your opinions and leadership will be there and they'll listen to you. And that's good enough for a lot of people, I think. Right. And, yeah. and if, and if they don't like that, then they can decide, uh, how they want to proceed, but and that was the part. Like I got, I'll tell you at the beginning, and you kind of used, you know, uh, George Floyd as one of those those moments because you're right. I felt the same thing. That was a bit of a turning point where I even within oil and gas, where you started to see that, it like, hey, you know, how are folks doing? We had forums, right? We were, you know, we were encouraged to check on our, you know, our our our, our peers, you know, our African American peers and all that. And so that was, I, I like how you said that. I agree. That was kind of a turning point as a supervisor. Initially, I was like, man, like I want to be able to, if folks want to talk about these things, I guess at the beginning, I was like, man, I got to be informed. And man, it's so hard <laughs> to stay informed on yeah. everything. I mean, cause it's like, okay, 
what is a good what is a good source what isn't a good source of information what is fact what is fake news <laughs> right and then yeah. so you take and every single item can take on a different uh a different face and i just i mean i tried and then it was like okay i settled for me at least it was what are the items and i like the way you said it, what are the items that are important to me right yeah. that i have some conviction about or that i'm interested in engaging about but that doesn't mean that as a, as a supervisor, right, as a manager, just even providing the outlets like you were talking about, just a place you're not, I'm not committing to answering any kind of questions. That was all yeah. self-generated, like this pressure to answer and moderate and, you know, <laughs> mediate. And it's like, wait a minute, that's not what it is. It's just enough yeah. to like offer a place for discussion, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a work environment. So there's some professionalism that is expected in the base case. But when those things either facilitating them or when they are made, like when they are created, engaging myself, right? So that folks that work for me kind of can see that, hey, it's okay to kind of engage in this and 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 not be seen under uh, a bit of a different um, light. I just, yeah, it's just hard, man. It's just, it's just real hard to stay informed with uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And I did, I mean, I'll... There's some items that I will. I'll read all the legislation. I'll listen to the congressional hearings because I'm interested in it. But if I try to do that for everything, man, I'm going to get fired. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. And, and I, I suffered from this, too. Like when the election was happening, last presidential election, I, I felt like I was just constantly like stuck glued to that, you know, that updating browser, like yeah. the electoral votes are coming in and stuff. And um, I think the same thing happened with um, some other uh, congressional thing that was happening and i'm like i can't do this for everything either because yeah it just sucks up my time it sucks up my energies like i i feel like i have nothing left to give back to work and it's not healthy um i think when COVID started too the pandemic like i was constantly glued to news about you know developing strains and, and spread of cases and lockdowns happening and i was just like at a certain point i had to step back because it just was not helping me it wasn't helping anybody to to do the things that i had to do and the goals i had to get so um i think it helps to step back from that stuff and, and just be focused on what you care about and um you know i think at, maybe as like a manager or supervisor yeah I, would, I wouldn't expect you to know everything you know and 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 i, I in terms of my manager I, I expect them to at least be open to like if I care about something that he doesn't know about, I would like to just tell him about it and why I care about it. And he can just be like, okay, yeah, I see what, what you mean or whatever. You know, just understand, but that's about it. Well, cool. Heidel, time has flown by talking with you. It's always, I'm, I'm always, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this point. Like an hour goes by fast and we could probably continue this on uh, forever, but uh, I do want to respect your time and I do have, another work call that I need to get to <laughs> here oh, at the sure. top of the hour. But uh, no, man, thanks again for, for taking the time to kind of share a bit about uh, who you are. If somebody wants to connect with you, how do they find you? LinkedIn, Instagram, blog. Yeah, you can go on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. Um, I think LinkedIn's probably the easiest way, but um, I don't know my Instagram. Do you, do you share the links? Do you, do yeah, I'll share Instagram? those. I'll share all those. Okay. Yeah, LinkedIn, Instagram, even Facebook. I'm known to be on Facebook a couple of times a, a week. So, and I'll be honest, I didn't know you had a blog, man, until like this last week. And yeah. uh, you got you. I like the way you write. Uh, there's, I, I got, I got to pull out a dictionary at times, but <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's entertaining in a good way. I just may, yeah, maybe entertaining is not the right word. It, I, I it cat, it caught my attention, and I couldn't stop reading. So. Yeah, I, I I don't advertise it too much because I it's just one of those things that like I'm half ashamed about, half proud of, you know. But I I took a, a decision. I, I've had it for three years, but uh, this year, like within the last four months, I, I made a decision to start writing more because I always have thoughts and feelings that I feel like I'm like, oh yeah, I should write that down, and I don't. And I think it's because I trap myself into thinking that I had to write a very long, complicated, perfect, bulletproof essay every time I, I had thoughts. Yeah. And so, you know what, I'm just going to get it out. I'm just going to vomit out whatever I'm thinking. I'm going to put it out in the world. And, you know, if people like it, cool. If not, I can go back and read it like a diary, right? So, 
Uh, but yeah, I, I 100% understand that mental struggle because <laughs> I've gone back and forth on blogs and journals for decades and I, I keep coming back to them because I do. I enjoy writing and helps me think about certain things that I want to talk about either here or, or on LinkedIn or with, or some conversation I have with somebody. And sometimes just writing it is a good way to, hey, I could be doing worse things, man. We could be doing worse things than mm -hmm. writing and in your case, riding a bike. So Again, man, Heidel, thanks for the time, and uh, you have a good night. Thank you, man. Nice talking to you as always.